The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast may contain coarse language and descriptions of violence which may not be suitable to all audiences. Welcome to the Soldier On podcast. I'm Hugh Remington. In this series, we'll be exploring the stories that highlight, celebrate and connect our veteran community. Leadership, what it means to lead and what it takes to be a leader, is a subject very familiar to our guests for today's episode. Today we hear from former Chief of Army, retired Lieutenant General and current Soldier on Chairman Peter Lay AC, as well as the Principal Psychologist and Executive Leadership Coach of the Australian Army Senior Leadership Team, Dr Rebecca Jackson. They will speak to their insights into the role of leadership, not only in a military setting, but in civilian life as well. We begin with Peter Lay. Leadership is a, a really complicated subject. And perhaps if I look back on it, the thing I'd say is that uh, when I went over to all the graduation ceremonies at Duntroon, and particularly when I was in the position of Chief of Army, I'd say to the young officers, I can pin the rank on your shoulders. I can call you a leader, but you're going to make yourself a leader. And that's going to be through every action that you take. You need to set and maintain the standards. You need to make sure that people see you as a team builder. You build a group of people around you who want to achieve the group aims, the collective aims, who want to serve the nation. And I think there's something quite pure in that, that they're prepared to put their life on the line. And there's something really quite special about that, that they depend on each other, we depend on each other, uh, and we know we're, we're doing this for a purpose. We're doing it for the nation and for the people that are being oppressed around the world or people who are in humanitarian strife. So I think that's the thing that sustained me. So I joined the army straight out of high school, grew up in a suburban Melbourne, a place called Ringwood, and I think I joined the army for a sense of adventure, a sense of commitment to the community, I was also very much interested in current affairs and world affairs and sort of read magazines like Time and Newsweek as a young kid. And I think the other thing was that I'd seen an advertisement for the Royal Military College Duntroon and it had a cadet all dressed up in his white uniform sitting in a, it was an actually MGB with the roof off and there was this rather young looking and quite beautiful lady standing next to him. And I thought, well, that'll do me. This has got to work. I think I took to it pretty well. I'd promised myself that I'd give it a year. The first couple of months were pretty difficult as you try and get used to these new procedures and new ways of doing things. I was already very fit. I'd played a lot of tennis at uh, a pretty decent standard. And so the, the fitness didn't bother me all that much. And I suppose towards the end of that first year, uh, I realized I liked it. Uh, I liked the studies. I liked the training that we were doing. I liked being out bush, and it was good being around people of like-minded. 
and the other cadets, but also the instructors that they had there who were nearly all Vietnam veterans were just inspiring. And I think we all said towards the end of that first year, I want to be just like them. And so from the second and third years on, it was I just found it natural. It was the place to be. And clearly that worked out for me because I stayed for 37 years. We'd uh, fully withdrawn from Vietnam by then. And the prospects of global deployments were diminished, and frankly, for most of my career. And I would say that I was in an army at peace for most of my career until in the early 2000s when we went off to Afghanistan and Iraq and had been doing some United Nations deployments. So there was no immediate sense that, uh, well, you're going here. There was a sense that uh, we had made a commitment and there was liability to service. And I think we all recognised that rather well. We had choices. You could go into what we call the arms corps, so infantry, armour, artillery, and some other corps like that. There was the service corps or the support corps. My sense was that if you're in the army, you probably want to do the hardest thing. So I chose to go to infantry. Going into the infantry was hard, but what I enjoyed about it was I was part of a team. We're, we're in this together. We, we worked together and we depended on each other. And that's what I enjoyed throughout my career and the, the different levels of command, that you were part of a team, you could support people, you could help them in their own life journey. And so enjoying them and seeing them grow was also a particularly satisfying experience. I think when I graduated, I had my horizon set at about major. I probably imagined that I might be a lieutenant colonel, but uh, I don't recall thinking, well, that's that's where I'll be. So you've got to keep working at it. You've got to keep applying yourself. So I was promoted through the ranks, uh, Major. I wasn't sure I'd get promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, but I was. I was put in command of a battalion. It's about 700 soldiers uh, up in Brisbane. Seemed to do that all right. And then I uh, was selected. And I say to people, uh, once you're around about Lieutenant or Colonel or Colonel, Strap in and go for the ride. Nothing's guaranteed. You need to be seen. You need to be recognised. You need to be really producing. And then all of a sudden, and it happened pretty quickly. So I was a colonel. I was promoted to brigadier and given a brigade command. Uh, three years after that, I was promoted to major general. And then uh, again, rapidly after that, to chief of army. I was responsible for the discipline and the morale and the behaviour of the army. I was given a charter from the Secretary of Defence and the Chief of the Defence Force. And it was essentially to say, raise, train and sustain the army. So raise is to recruit them, train them to a good standard so that they're ready to go out to the units. Train is to prepare them for the operations. And we had a really big training organisation and then sustained, which is to acquire the capability that the army needs, get it into the field and then continually renew it. And I can recall one visit I did to Iraq. We'd provided a new capability and that uh, it was an anti-armour weapon. And uh, I arrived just after the guys had used it against an Iraqi force. The guy briefed me on it. And he said, sir, the battlefield changed that day and they never came back. And I was just, I, I was purring, I think, when I heard that because I saw that was my job to change the battlefield 
and make sure that the enemy never came back. So that was really it. And to my mind, it was, um, it really was strap in and go for the ride. They kept doing good things to me and I kept going and uh, popped out 37 years later. You can learn to be a leader, but you, you should be working hard at your natural skills and abilities. And frankly, there are some people who, who aren't leaders and quite often they know that. I actually give a talk every now and again on what I call command, leadership and management. And I try and draw a distinction between the three. And almost anyone can be a manager. Not everybody can be a leader. Not everybody's got that sense of uh, empathy, that sense of being able to build that team. And I draw a distinction between leadership and command, and command being the authority that an officer has to order someone to do something. And in this talk, I say that I think command is the last refuge of a bad leader. If you can't persuade people to do their duties, do their tasks, do as part of a team, and in the extreme, I think we should look at this as in terms of you can't order a person to their death. And I think what happened in Gallipoli, the Neck, and various other places, we lost hundreds and thousands of people. Same on the Somme. And they didn't do that because they were ordered. They did it because they were part of a team doing something that they believed in. And I think that's the, let's call it the supreme art of leadership, convincing people to do something that they normally wouldn't want to do because they really want to do it as part of a team and they're looking to achieve something good in the world. You do need to be working, as I said to those young officers, every day you're going to make yourself a leader. Show that you're concerned. Show that uh, you are setting the example. Show the importance of what they're doing. Another aspect of that in the Australian Army is that we've got some magnificent examples of leadership. Uh, when the soldiers go through recruit training at Kapuka, they're in platoon lots of about 30 people. And those platoons are named after the famous battles of the Australian Army. So we're saying it's not just you on your own. People have done this before. So we make something of our heroes. We make something of our leaders. In fact, I'm just thinking of a young bloke I, I spoke to once. He, he was thinking of joining the army. And I said, what do you want to achieve in the army? He said, well, I want to be the chief of the army. And I thought at the time, mate, won't be working like that. You've got to earn your rank. And at the same time, the soldiers figure you out pretty quickly too. You know, I've seen sort of young officers recorded as, hey, that one's a bit of a dud. We're not going to do what he wants. They'll make it difficult for you. And I can remember in my first platoon, that we were doing something rather complicated. By night, it was difficult. Of course, it was pissing down with rain. And I gave a hand signal. It was passed on. And I turned around and they were doing exactly what I would have expected them to do. And you get that sense, hey, this is working. Not sure why, but this is working. And then that confidence builds. Leaders also need followers. And I think this is an important recognition. And, and they need a sense of we belong to the team. They need a, a sense that there is communications here. There are not so much rules, but there are procedures and, and common things that we all do together. And that really engenders a sense of pride. And you want everyone in your command to think we're the best. That leads to competition, which is really important. And I, I think another thing that's important, and I'd ask uh, people who are listening to this podcast to have a look at the advertisements for the Australian Army on television particularly. They've modernised over the time. There's no more young girls and blokes in MGBs with the top down. There's some really pretty challenging stuff and showcasing the equipment that we've got. But towards the end of the advertisement, you're going to see 
The badge of the rising sun, really evocative, emotive symbol, but you'll also see two words, challenge yourself. And I think every day in the army, and that's partly why I joined the infantry, I wanted to challenge myself. And, and similarly, other people I've spoken to about joining the army, they say, what should I do? And I said, it's simple, don't stop. Just keep doing, just keep going. Think of those guys on the Western Front. Think of those people in, in Timor, in Iraq and Afghanistan. They didn't stop because it was too hard. They kept going. I'm thinking here of the army values. And values are important to people. It's, it's, it's the morality of it, it's the ethics of it, but it's how you behave, what your character is. Courage, initiative, teamwork and respect. And the courage is both physical courage in a battle situation, but also moral courage to make the right decision. The initiative is, um, if something's happening, get involved in it, do something. Don't sit back and wait for someone to tell you to do something. And the army really appreciates and rewards people who get stuck in and do things. The teamwork, and I, you, you really depend on people. You depend on their different skills and their different attributes and the way they work together. And respect... We have to respect each other for our skills and abilities, but also respect the people we're working among. And, and this is really in some of the humanitarian other situations where you have to respect what people are doing. And even then, in down and out combat situations, you have to respect your enemy uh, and you know, be prepared to kill them, which is the bottom line for the military, but also to treat them properly when they've been captured or treat them properly in other situations. So courage, initiative, teamwork, and respect. There's an enormous amount of trust in the military. You look after your mates. And I can recall uh, was when I was visiting in Iraq and Afghanistan, you talk to the guys after they'd been involved in some really dangerous situations they'd been involved in contacts. And the sort of sense there was, hey, sir, I knew what to do. The training kicked in. So I think that's really important. But the other aspect was that I had to look after my mates. We were part of a team. We we're going to survive together. And so there's that trust. There's that dependence. And there's movies about and some of the books about the brotherhood. We, of course, need to recognise now that it's not just males. There are females and a whole range of people who are involved in this. And they're all looking after each other. And they all depend on each other. It really does get pretty intense. And when you see them after they've been casualties, whether it's wounded or people killed in action, there's that sense of grief for someone that has become like a brother or a sister, someone that they mutually depended on. Uh, and that's why it hurts people so much when you lose a casualty. I retired because, frankly, I'd run out of jobs at 55. I was teaching out at the University of Canberra teaching defence and security related subjects. I was also patron of the Canberra Services Club, which sadly burned down. And uh, one of the guys from the Services Club who was in the military, working out at Bungendore, came to me and said, I've got a couple of young officers, one from the Army, one from the Air Force, who've got a an idea about a charity. And this had been started uh, when John Bale and his wife and this other guy uh, got it going. His mate from school had been killed in uh, Afghanistan. Michael Fussell. And John recognised that uh, there was help for Michael's brother and his family, 
but others had been injured in that particular contact. And what help were we giving them? So they, they came to me and I, I played the role of mentor and supporter. And, and then eventually they said, uh, uh, we want to form a charity and we want you to be the chairman. And I guess this whole thing had taken about six months. And I said to them, if you hadn't asked me, I was going to bloody throttle you because I became invested in the, in the ideas that they had, the need for what they had. Now, I was well out of the army by now, but I also have a real sense then and even now this is a bit of a duty for me. My soldiers looked after me and what I need to be able to do now is look after them. So that was 10 years ago and I'm still here and still feeling very privileged to be part of the organisation because part of what I can do is help people with their own transition. For me, it, it, it worked out well. I was living here in Canberra. We've stayed in Canberra. My kids were through school, so there wasn't any sense of where do we go so I think I was one of the lucky ones. Some need a hand, some miss that collegiality and the, the closeness of the military system and their mates, and that's where Soldier On and other ex-service organisations are able to help out. There's support to be had, there's help to be had. We think at Soldier On we're doing it pretty well, and uh, a big part of it is to look after that transition. And we need to recognise that most people who leave the military are in bloody good shape. They've been well-trained. Uh, they've been able to work as a team. They've got a, a work ethic that employers would would really appreciate. So any prospective employers out there, have a look at them. Some have been physically injured. Some are psychologically injured. And Soldier On certainly works very well in that space. And we put a lot of effort into that. And for those who are having trouble, we want to support them, help them with resumes and writing all sorts of things. But I think there's another element here, and Soldier On certainly recognises this, that it's not just the person who's been in the military. It's quite often the family, the spouse and the kids who don't cope with the travel, who don't cope well with people going on multiple deployments, who find it a bit hard if you move from Darwin down to, let's say, Melbourne, to get a job. A lot of employers sort of say, well, you're only here for a couple of years. Well, that's not the attitude. The spouses have got something to contribute. And in some cases, the more severe cases, they're the ones that have been and will continue to hold the family together. So that is really important to soldier on, building that sense of community. We're interested in health and well-being. We're interested in education. I think the other thing worth mentioning at the moment is that we've got a Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide. They've put in their interim report and it's good and solid. But there's a lot of work required here. I look on the number of suicides, and it's hard to actually know how many, but it's too many. I've described it as a national disgrace previously. We must do more to stop these suicides. We, we must reach out and support people. We must make sure that things don't happen that get them to a situation where they feel that there's, there's no other option. There are other options, and if you reach out, your friends will help, and Soldier On will certainly help. So I'm looking forward to the final report of the Royal Commission into Veteran Suicide because we have to stop this scourge. I think one of the things we've realised at Soldier On is that there is a role for the military while people are serving to support them in their physical health and their mental health and what they might be able to do on transition. There's a role for the community as a role for government, and I think they do that quite well through DVA and other government agencies. 
But I'd like to think that what's really important is that we get the community behind this. We leave the military, we go out into the community, and that's where our future lies. That's where our families are. And so, yes, well done, government, for the support. But why don't we as a community prepare ourselves to say thank you for what soldiers and sailors and aviators have done? We should say, on operations, you had our backs. Now it's our turn to have your backs. So I'd encourage the Australian community to say thanks for what you've done. You don't just say that on Anzac Day. You say that every day. You, you support the military and the community because they're supporting you. And when we come back, look after us, will you? And I think there's something really important there that there's a genuineness about that, that the community support our veterans. Coming up, we'll be hearing Dr. Rebecca Jackson's reflections on leadership and her experiences being the principal psychologist and executive leadership coach for the Australian Army senior leadership team. But before we get there, we'd like to take a moment to spotlight leadership in the civilian industry, an organisation that empowers our ex-serving members to thrive once leaving defence. That organisation is Fujitsu. Kyla Limmer is the Head of Defence and Intelligence for Australia and New Zealand at Fujitsu, and she's also the spouse of a veteran. We begin our short conversation with Kyla, dispelling the myth that Fujitsu is a brand that only makes appliances such as air conditioners. Correct. <laughs> Often people only see Fujitsu as those that sell air conditioning. Thanks to all of the television ads from the cricketing team. Well done. Uh, no, we've been the, the quiet achievers in the background. So we've been serving defence in Australia for over 40 years. We, at the moment, currently sit at around 200 ex-serving personnel. And out of that 200, we've got about 20 of them that are still active reservists. For us, the ADF personnel bring a strong work ethic for a start to our organisation. And they're very values aligned, um, which is 100% what Fujitsu is aligned to. So being a Japanese company, we often talk about decision making as what we do today needs to be something that two generations in the, in the future will be proud of. We don't make decisions very quickly because of, of making sure that we've got that value alignment. And I think the other thing is that our defence technology roles, so those that have come out of the signals community, are very similar to our own in IT. Uh, and so for therefore their ability to talk and understand Fujitsu's defence-based activities are generally pretty high. And I think that the flexibility that we offer to those service personnel who wish to transition out and continue to serve as a reservist is also an important differentiator for us. But I think just generally they're, they're ready to lean in, chip in, they've got a really good teamwork and they're there for each other and for the focus to be on the capability outcome because they know that they've got you know mates that are still serving that are heavily reliant on that capability. What we find is that because we've got that veteran community and some of our ex-serving are, you know, you know, have been out for 10, 15, 20 years, but they still hold true the, the values and the intent. The interesting thing that we find for some of the newer ex-serving personnel that join us is that they relish the opportunity to step above and outside of their rank limitations. So what I mean by that is that they're often, you know, at certain levels, not able to critically assess or critically ask a further determining question, they've just got to go and follow orders. Whereas when they come on our side of the fence, they're like, well, actually, I've got an idea. Do you mind if I share it? And that's very much taken on board and, and we embrace that. 
It's interesting to see how quickly when ex-serving members come to join Fujitsu, how quickly they sniff out the other ex-serving and veterans. We have an organisation within Fujitsu called the VERG, which is the Veterans and Emergency Responders Group. And so that's an official group that they can lob into and we make sure that they've got their, you know, their reservist days leave all sorted and they've got, you know, if they've gone through a tough time that we provide some support. We've got our general employee care facilities that we can offer to them, but it's really more of that mateship that comes through from that community, particularly that they understand how to talk to each other and how to recognise the signs, I guess, of, of stress and some concerns that they might have about part of that transitioning. We have got a thousand strong employee group that work distinctly on the defence industry and out of that, you know, 200, as I said, are defence personnel or ex-serving. And so for us, it's really important for them to feel that they've got not only a defence vertical that they can work in, but we offer five other verticals that offer them uh, some skill sets that they can utilise into commercial, our health and hospitality area, our retail area, and our public sector and public safety. And so it's interesting to see how they go from joining Fujitsu potentially initially as the in the defence realm, but then understand that their skill sets are actually vastly important across a whole range of verticals. So for us, it's, it's really a joy to watch their journey uh, as they grow to their full potential, uh, even though they, they may have thought that they had reached that in uniform. So for us, it's, it's fantastic. The ADF invests millions in some of these guys and girls. They've obviously got some great skill sets and they don't know how to articulate that some of their command and control technologies and skill sets absolutely makes them program managers and, and fantastic project managers, let alone, you know, really being, they don't have to be on the tools coding, right? So I think it's really interesting to see how we unpack that with them. So it's not something that we specifically look for on their resume to make sure that they've got it written out the right way. And I know Soldier On does a lot of great work in making sure that wherever possible it's, it's put into civilian speak. The relationship that we've had with Soldier On has been over several years and it's been a really integral part of, of how we express the gratitude that we have for those that have served our community um, and now are on the civilian side. So for us, it's been almost a, a two-way street because we've learned a lot about how to better support our veteran community, to relish and celebrate the work that they've done you know, in uniform, but also uh, celebrate how they've transitioned out into civilian life and how they continue to serve just maybe in a different uniform. It might be a Fujitsu one or it might be a something else. So, you know, and they throw great gala balls. So, you know, what's not to love about that? There are many different attributes that make up a leader. Dr. Rebecca Jackson has made the topic of leadership a lifetime study and her extensive experience provides a unique insight into what makes a leader today and into the future. Having served 15 years in the Australian Army Reserves, Dr Jackson is now the Principal Psychologist and Executive Leadership Coach for the Australian Army Senior Leadership Team. She has dedicated her skills and experience to the betterment of Defence members. Though for Dr Jackson, leadership did not always feel like a natural calling. I haven't necessarily always seen myself as a leader. Definitely in my professional career now, I've had to own that a little bit more because for the last you know, dozen years, I've been working in this space of leader and leadership development. 
which meant that I always kind of saw myself on the sidelines as kind of the coach or the expert or the helper for leaders, but had not necessarily owned that identity for myself. So I think sometimes what people see as assertive, they then, depending on their own I guess, frame or lens that they use, they might label it as bossy. And it kind of does have a bit of a gendered, you know, a negative slant to it in that it's usually, you don't necessarily hear men being described as bossy. That tends to be a label that, you know, does get thrown at at women and particularly really confident and assertive young girls, I think, probably get that label unfairly. My early sort of childhood models, my my dad was ex-military, so he'd been a very strong, he was a very strong presence in our family, definitely a very strong, forthright, assertive kind of guy. I was the eldest in my family, so I modelled a lot of my behaviour, I guess, on him. And so I sort of had a male role model early in my life. And I probably early on as a kid thought that was how, if you were going to have a voice and stand up and be confident, that it definitely looked like that. Like it looked assertive, it looked loud, it looked big, it looked extroverted. And I guess what I've you know, realised as I've, you know, myself as I've grown as a person, but also as I've worked with lots and lots, hundreds, thousands of leaders now, that we come in all different shapes and sizes and that leadership doesn't have to look one specific way. The very first year that I stepped out at the Australian War College and I was 30 and had been in the Army Reserves myself, had been a part of that kind of hierarchy and was suddenly thrust into the stage now talking about leadership development with people who, if I was to compare my Army Reserve rank to them, they were much more senior and much older, much more male and much more uh, experienced in terms of they had held formal leadership roles across all three services, very experienced. You know, most of these people had sort of 30, 35 years of service behind them incredibly successful in their own right and demonstrated runs on the board of leadership. And here's May standing out the front, who now is like going to be talking to them about leadership development. You know, I'm mustering up all of the kind of emotional courage that I can to get out there. And I'm like, yep, you're the doctor of psychology. You've worked in some really tough places. I too worked in a prison. So I was like, you've worked with some pretty hard individuals. You've got this gave myself this pep talk and then stepped out onto the stage and started talking about emotional intelligence and how soft skills like influence and empathy and compassion are really important in leadership. And this guy in the back raises his hand. I'm probably about five minutes into my spiel. And I said, oh, yes. And he said, with all due respect, Dr. Jackson, I'm just wondering what it is that you think you're going to be able to teach us about strategic leadership. It was that moment where I just thought, I'm found out, like, you know, and I had to just kind of be really vulnerable in that moment and say, look, I'm really curious to know as well what it is that we're going to be able to work on together. But I see myself here as a coach. We're going to have a conversation. Obviously, there's a huge degree of experience in the room. And this is about me bringing a lot of your experience and learning to the fore and and us learning together, you know. And it was kind of the best I could muster at the point. And I've gone back over that conversation so many times. But it was really pivotal for me because I think for a long time to sit outside of my own role as a leader and see that they were the experts and I was really there to impart additional information and additional skills and to talk about 
psychology and to talk about, you know, areas that I felt really comfortable in rather than, I guess, stepping into that and saying, no, actually, you know, a leader doesn't have to be someone in an appointed role. A leader is somebody who, you know, through who they are, how they act and what they can do to inspire others and to bring the best out in them, that's what makes them a leader. And you don't have to have a formal appointed role to actually own that identity. I think, you know, we can overcomplicate it. And I think that the study of kind of leadership or the science of leadership or the practice of leadership has become, it's a big business, right? And so we can tend to overthink it. We can overcomplicate it. If we make it sound really scientific and difficult, it sort of makes it unreachable. But I guess the perspective that I take is that everyone has the potential to be a leader. Everyone can be a leader in their own right. A leader is anyone who, by virtue of who they are and what they do, inspires and empowers other people to be better and do better. So I think coming from that place, when I think about who a leader is, it means that the ones that we feel the most confident in are people who are firstly good humans. Like I always think, you know, when I, um, and this is the psychologist in me, in my background, is that when I deal with people and I say, if you want to be a better leader, start with being a better human. Like if you can focus on your humanity and who you are as a person and you can focus on being the best version of yourself, that automatically translates to you being a better leader. Vulnerability has become a very popular topic for discussion around leadership and and brought, you know, to the fore by the work of Brene Brown. So she had studied and researched vulnerability. She did that TED Talk on vulnerability, which obviously went viral. I think it's like in the top, you know, five TED Talks of all time. So she really brought the concept of vulnerability to the fore. I think one of her quotes is, you can't have courage without vulnerability. And so I guess it's interesting because for many people, and particularly for people, whether it be in a corporate setting in business, whether it be in the military, whether it just be, you know, everyday people in their everyday life, we've equated, I think, traditionally vulnerability to weakness. That if I'm vulnerable, the fear is that either people will see me as less than or they will take advantage of me. And I think that you can understand why if that's the mindset that you have, you would avoid vulnerability at all costs. Like, I don't want to show anybody that I'm human or I don't want to show anybody that, yes, I'm only 30 years of age or I don't want to show anybody that I have a more junior position than you in this organisation. I think most of us kind of, you, you feel intimidated by somebody when you see them as being invulnerable and having no vulnerabilities. It kind of makes them seem robotic and superhuman. And often I sort of think about those people. I know when I became a mum for the first time, I would see other mums and I would think, oh my goodness, they've got their shit completely sorted. They are 100%, you know, these kind of super mums. And it's hard to connect. And it wasn't until I got into like my first mother's group and we're all kind of sharing, you know, the things that were going wrong or the um, our insecurities or our fears around being, you know, first time mums that you kind of go, oh, okay, I can connect with you. So we like to connect with other people when we can see their humanity and vulnerability is a part of that. I had this um, a really interesting conversation with a military leader who he had come back from operations in the Middle East and we were talking about, I guess, now his 18 months or so post-operations just in his kind of day-to-day back here in Canberra in his kind of, you know, day-to-day life and he was saying it's taken him a while to feel comfortable to disclose some of the challenges around that and he said because 
I have seen that we've got quite a narrow frame about how we want people to respond. When they come back from those really adverse and difficult trying circumstances, we don't want people to come back and be too broken, but we also don't want people to come back and as though it's had no effect because then we start to question whether or not they actually are human. Like we, we sort of, you know, there's a, there's a Goldilocks expectation in the middle where we want people to have been affected, but not so much that it disrupts their ability to function. But he was saying that definitely amongst his kind of peer group, there's been a real shift in normalising a whole range of different responses to that and that the power in being able to actually share your story and to talk about those experiences and to talk about them in a way which empowers, I guess, all of those different reactions to that, enables you to then be able to kind of move forward and integrate those experiences in a way which builds resilience as opposed to it being something which detracts from your ongoing or kind of future capacities. Obviously, in an organisation where you do have a hierarchical structure where generally the people who hold the positions of authority in the organisation are older and are more experienced and they're of a different generation and and yet the people who make up the bulk of their workforce are from a different generation, less experienced in terms of time in profession, not necessarily less skilled. And so three kind of big mindsets that we work with, one is around seeing EQ, so your emotional intelligence as being just as important as your IQ or your intelligence. So appreciating that all of the soft skills, and this was like a big barrier for me to overcome early in my career in this space was selling that, um, you know, emotional skills around relationship building and self-awareness and empathy and compassion. And those things are equally and often more important than your technical skill or your cognitive kind of capacity. So your your special specialisation. So trying to get people to appreciate those who they are leading for both of those things, for their technical skill, but then also for their social intelligence and their emotional intelligence. Thinking about moving away from power in relationships to empowering people. So trying to get them to think about the fact that their role as the leader is often to enable and empower those voices of their workforce. So, you know, whether it be millennials, whether it be Gen Z, how do you help them to realise their potential and what can you do to lift them up and and to give them a voice. So it's actually about empowering them rather than power over them. Toxic leadership, I think, comes from a place of where people see themselves as I am the leader and others should serve me. Like leadership is a right. I am a leader. You are there to serve me. People are around to serve me. They're there to kind of bend to my will because I'm so awesome that I deserve this versus I am the leader. It's a huge responsibility. I feel very grateful to be in this position. I am of service to other people. So I think the sort of the toxic leader sees themselves as leadership is a right versus it's a responsibility and, and I want to uphold that the best that I can and be a servant to other people. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soldier On podcast. Soldier On is a not-for-profit veteran support organisation delivering a range of services to enable serving and ex-serving veterans and their families to thrive. If listening to today's podcast has brought up any personal concerns for yourself, a list of support services can be found in our show notes. The Soldier On podcast is produced by Smartfella Media. 
with special thanks to the team at Artsound FM in Canberra. I'm Hugh Rimmington. Thanks for listening. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.